Welcome to Anger Management. My name is Karin Pettersson. I'm Georg Dietz. And this week we met with um, Harvard economist Danny Roderick, professor Another at the Kennedy School. Another one of your darlings. Another uh, one of my darlings. Another present to Karin, a <laughs> yes. farewell present uh, from Harvard. Yes, so this is a person I've been following a long time, even before coming here this year. He's a... Uh, He's a well-known economist. He has written extensively about globalization and trade, and uh, he comes from the world of development economics. But he said one thing this spring in class that has stuck with me. Our class. Our class. We we took took his class. class. Political economy after the crisis. After the crisis. The coup of the financial uh, elites. I I don't think he used the word coup. No? No. But what it is... But it was more to that point, so... (laughs) Yeah. But what he did say was that it's um, interesting as, an, as a development economist to follow the uh, what happens in the U.S. because it becomes more and more, uh, the, the knowledge I have, he said, becomes more and more useful uh, when studying this country. This failing nation, this, this failing, failing country. Yeah. yeah. So his, his, his take is more, uh, was strangely more optimistic. Yeah. Um, in the conversation than, than, than ours. Yeah, and um, I th- maybe it's because he has this outlook and he uh, is very much aware of the fact that the last decade has not just been a uh, mad crisis and the rise of populism, but also for many people in the world, a, uh, a racing, rising uh, living standards, a, a new middle class in, yeah. in, and he's, and, and I think, India and China. Yeah, I think what was so fascinating about the class was that they were it was him and Roberto teaching Unger. Roberto Unger, the <laughs> radical visionary, and he, the empathic pragmatist. Yeah. Um, and so it was uh, the ideal mirroring of uh, your uh, <laughs> approach and maybe my approach. And what I found so interesting about the, the two of them was that how they interacted, how they yeah. sort of listened to each other. <laughs> and I think that's what is sort of in the message of, of Roderick, that, that economists should be so full of themselves, should be more aware of uh, their role as um, partners in a dialogue. So yeah. and then he, he talked about that, about the narrator, economist, as, as, as a, a prime storyteller in a way of, of, of our time and, and the way that the, the, the crisis of um, the lack of ideas, the crisis of a vision for how to run economy, economies these days is connected to the... To the uh, lack of understanding of economists as just one yeah. possible narrative. Yeah, and he's in this interesting position where he's, bo- where he's both, I think, uh, critical of his own profession and maybe of the role they play in the public discourse, but also very critical of how the public and journalists and, and politicians, I guess, um, interpret uh, and think about economics. And he says that economics is a much more complex and broad field than it's sometimes given credit for and there will be if you look more closely there you can find support for you know diverse uh, ideologies or ways of looking at the world and he sees economic models more as talks about them as fables more as uh, and stories as you said more than you know truths yeah and he talked in the end as (laughs) as he was talking to some to two Europeans he talked about Europe and about the um, role of Germany um, in rebuilding <laughs> Europe and the question if they will they will let go of austerity if Angela Merkel will let go of austerity which is I guess a key question for the survival of the union yes so big topics yeah enjoy
Professor Roderick, thank you for taking the time. Um, I think to jump right in, sum up what we talked about in your class, Karin and I talked about, we talked about in the podcast, is basically one thing. Why did we fail? How did we fail? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, you know, it's a failure and a success at the same time. I mean, I think if we look at in the last 25 uh, years, um, you know, uh, with some distance, uh, you know, that we'll, we'll see that there were a lot of things that were very good that happened. Uh, uh, most importantly, of course, the fact that uh, you had hundreds of millions of people who, uh, you know, became significantly less poor. Um, you know, there were countries in, in Asia, China, and then later India that did extremely well. Um, and, and these are these were really um, literally, uh, you know, the, the, the best times in terms of poverty reduction in any time in, in, in world economic history. Mm. Um, so we can't simply, you know, ignore the fact that some of the poorest people in the world became uh, significantly better off. Mm. Um, you know, it had you know it wasn't all. Uh, globalization, but globalization had something to do with it, uh, especially in China, that you could get people into off the farm and into factories, and they could be producing things for world markets uh, and sell them there. So that, so you know, there was a lot of it that actually worked, and and uh, and behind that, of course, was a set of um, institutions that we had set up uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War the World Bank, uh, the GATT and its successor, the WTO, the IMF, which, you know, basically, you know, maintained a system that uh, was by and large conducive to, to such uh, growth miracles and, and poverty reduction miracles. Um, so maybe to, have we have to, to clarify, happen. I just realized, so, so the, the we is the problem in this. I mean, the we is unclear, I and mean, your answer is the West set up these institutions and the West looked at globalization and, and, and I made, made the we. The, me, the we is obviously excluding seven-tenths of the, of the world population and I think that's maybe yeah, but so the, the yeah. problem. This we is very yeah. is Western-centric. Um, but I think even, you know, I, I, I don't think even in the West, I think, I, you know, it's, it's not that we're so parochial. I think most people do care about, you know, such things. So, but the... Um, but some, you know, we broke some things uh, in 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 you know on the way there, and I think that's where we have failed. Um, now I think the foundations on which um, you know these great things did happen were, as I said, laid out at the at the uh, end of the Second World War, and in fact, probably the best way to understand China's uh, miracle uh, is to summarize it by saying. China did so well by playing by Bretton Woods rules, mm -hmm. uh, that is by playing by the rules of an earlier model of globalization, not by playing according to the hybrid globalization rules that, you know, that to which we moved in the, in the, after the 1990s. Mm -hmm. um, so I think where we failed is, we, you know, we took something that uh, um, was sound and was working and, uh, you know, an understanding um, where you know, the world economy could provide, could be a very powerful tool for uh, prosperity and, and, and development uh, and, and social progress, uh, but it had to be at the service of those goals, uh, that it didn't become an end in itself. And I think, uh, you know, sometime in the late 80s and 1990s, eventually those priorities got reversed and, and globalization became the end 
and and nations and their goals and their objectives and democracies, so so to speak, had to serve the end of globalization rather than um, you know the other way around. And I think that's that has created the various fissures that we are experiencing: the the, the populism, the backlash, mm-hmm. the discontent in the. Uh, and, and not just in the advanced countries. I mean, I think there's a lot of discontent in the developing world as, w- as well, and I think uh, we'll, we will see more of that as growth slows down in much of the developing world. Um, so is to go back to, to your question, you know, I, I don't think the issue is really we need to rewrite everything, that we need to sort of re- re-engineer everything from scratch. Uh, you know, I think most fundamentally what we need to do is, is, is return to an understanding of um, how the world economy fits uh, in a world of nation states, uh, which is an understanding from an an earlier era, if you will, the Bretton Woods era, uh, where we understood that that national strategies and and, and, and national social contracts and and democracies came first, uh, and, and we should push for globalization only uh, to the extent that it doesn't harm uh, those um, those higher goals and, uh, and values, um, and of course, on, on, you know, it'll mean you know we negotiate trade agreements differently. We think very differently about mm-hmm. capital flows. We think differently about the integration process in Europe. Uh, but it's not that there was something fundamentally uh, wrong or, rick- or, or wicked uh, in, in the system, because <clears throat> a central theme of um, your class that George and I have been auditing this spring and when you look at your writing it's this trilemma uh, of hyper-globalization, mass politics and the national state and you can't have all three of these, you have to choose and I guess your story then is that in the late 80s and 90s hyper-globalization took over as the, the prime Project and but I, I'm just curious about your why did that happen? Is it was it an, an ideological project? Or was it the uh, hijacking of political processes by corrupt elites? So, I mean, there are different models of explanations for this, and maybe we yeah. need to think yeah. about that before um, yes. trying to think about how how to go forward. Yes, but yes. Well, you know, I, you know, it's a it's a it's a great question, and um, you know, I, I don't think. You know, we can really parse out the role, the distinct role of uh, interests uh, and and ideas. Uh, yeah. But I think they were both there, in the sense that you know we certainly had um, you know, bankers and multinationals and, and exporters and and, uh, and and trade negotiators and trade lawyers who, you know, uh, were really interested in. You know, in, in, in pushing forward uh, in hyper globalization, because basically, you know, they wanted to reduce the the, the, the barriers that prevented uh, banks from moving across national boundaries, from multinationals being able to outsource, from uh, accessing markets, and so forth. So there was definitely an element of interest from you know the the, the groups that we know were the big winners. Um, but it wasn't just, uh, I think, specific interests. I think, you know, it was also that we had we constructed a particular narrative. There was a cognitive construct um, that uh, uh, essentially took um, 
a good story too far. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think that was, you know, from the vantage point of 1990, we could look back and say, look what an in- incredible success, you know, the GATT has been. Mm-hmm. What an incredible success as the IMF has been, the progressive liberalization of trade and capital movements around the world. Mm-hmm. Why don't we keep going? Um, even though, even if, you know, the m- barriers are no longer tariffs and quotas and, and these, these, uh, uh, obstacles at the border, even though they're really about things like intellectual property rights, about uh, consumer regulations, or about uh, uh, banking regulations, things that are really very much behind the border, things that are intricately um, uh, entangled with, uh, with with national uh, choices and democratic uh, decision making. So it's uh, different just, from just. It's just let's keep going yeah. and and and. Um, so there was a, 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 a kind of a narrative that uh, also fed uh, the advancement of, of those those interests. And obviously, without that narrative, without that cognitive uh, uh, construct, uh, it would have been much harder for the bankers and the pharmaceutical companies and the multinationals uh, and the financiers uh, to push through on this. So it was it was a re, you know, the, the, you know, the, the interests and the ideas I think reinforced each other. I'm, I'm interested in that sort of moment of the lost piece, I guess, of 1989, or, or sort of the failure to, to make something of, of that moment. Um, and and that's something that we talked about a lot among ourselves or in the podcast, is this the role of the nation state. Um, um, and, and if you can go back, you say you have to go back in a way to, 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 to either reconstruct the system of to create free, space free trade for, that, that works. Uh, yeah. So is that, but is that is that an intermediate goal? So do you, in your vision, do you have a, a system for supernatural, uh, supernatural, <laughs> supernational yeah. um, organization th- that, that could work? Or, or, or is that the entity that you would like yeah. to work with? Well, you know, uh, you, know, I, you know, I do not have any particular um, uh, ideological attachment to the, na- to the nation state. And in fact, I, you know, I thought that uh, you know, Europe uh, it was potentially one region which could transcend the nation-state and create um, uh, a, a transnational democracy alongside its its single single market. Um, I, I do think that the world is too large and too diverse um, to accommodate just a single global federation. Uh, but I'm agnostic as to whether. You know, in the long, uh, unconstrained future, uh, whether we should have, you know, um, 185 states or whether we should have 25, um, I, don't, I don't know that there, that necessarily we can take a, a principled normative stand on that question. Um, and in fact, when I, you know, the, the first time I wrote up the the trilemma, uh, I think it was in 2000. Um, and in that article in 2000, I talked about some, I was asked to speculate about the future, and I said in the future, you know, basically we solve the trilemma by ending um, in that corner where we're combining uh, democracy and globalization and doing away uh, with the nation state. Um, and, uh, and I think uh, one could envisage uh, regional constellations of that kind um, uh, sometime in, in the future. You know, how do we get from here to there is, is of course, is, is, is much more difficult. But what I do know uh, is that if you do not have a plan to get there, 
simultaneously trying to integrate your economy uh, um, in global markets um, while claiming to remain democratic and and uh, extolling the virtues of sovereignty is just, uh, I think, a, a road to to disaster. So <clears throat> I'm interested in um, connecting to the question before about this moment, um, late 80s, early 90s, and you did say something about we, uh, and um, maybe that's the we that uh, Georg started out with. Something happened in this period of time where there was a we that told the story that was maybe too good to be true, and there was uh, kind of a, a loosening or maybe um, a disintegration of, of, of a mandate from uh, from uh, from citizens or from in, in within nation states and you're trying to avoid the word elite uh, yeah I, i'm trying to avoid so i think it's but it's, it's also and i'm i'm from the left i come from i have a background in social and social democracy and i'm i'm I've been thinking a lot this year about about what happened during the 90s and this convergence of economic policies uh this kind of this letting go of uh, of representing workers letting go of representing some parts of society that um then felt mm-hmm. left out and not rep- represented mm-hmm. and creating this political vacuum mm-hmm. that we now see and i think that's part of the backlash that we now see but, and, and and could you talk a little bit more about this we that was created and who was left yeah. out uh Well, you know, I, I think uh, my very sort of, uh, you know, cursory you know, summary of, of that would be that, um, uh, you know, essentially the left, um, uh, you know, not only bought into that narrative, uh, actually became its foremost uh, exponent. Um, and social democracy, um, social democrats in 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 Europe, and uh, and the Democratic uh, Party in 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 the United States. Um, now I don't fully understand exactly why that happened, um, mm. but clearly the 1980s were the time when um, when the conservative right, the market fundamentalists, um, you know, made a big assault mm. uh, on. Supported by the perception that, on the one hand, Keynesianism had failed, uh, and and secondly, that the welfare state was no longer uh, um, could no longer be financed, mm. um, and I think that left uh, the 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 um, uh, the left on the intellectually defensive position. So what happened was, I think, the left uh, sort of bought into that narrative that Keynesianism had been defeated and the welfare state was no longer uh, sustainable and therefore you had to move towards um, sort of a much more of a, a market, uh, you know, f- fundamentalist system um, with, um, you know, essentially the role of the states, the role of the left being essentially to, to sweeten Uh, and take the edges off uh, the kind of to use the famous sugarcoating sugarcoat as as uh, you know my 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 good friend and and colleague and co-teacher Roberto Mangaber Unger says, um, but that's 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 very much the case. And and mm-hmm. what what I find striking in this story is not that just that the left went along. In fact, the left became the promoters 
uh, of the story. Of course, in, in, in Europe, it was the, the French socialists that, that pushed hard for uh, you know, deregulating financial markets and for, for uh, capital market integration and capital account convertibility. Um, in the United States, it was the Clinton Democrats that pushed for trade agreements and, uh, and de- deregulating financial markets. Um, so there was this, uh, this, this, you know, an incredible sort of, you know, cognitive capture, I think, would be the way that I would describe it, of, you know, sort of the intellectuals and the thinking of the center-left um, that, that pushed this agenda. Um, and I think that, in turn, set the stage for the inability of, of the center-left to provide a response. Yeah, uh, can, yeah can I ask you too? <laughs> something because that, that, it's a revelatory moment, moment for me now. So I mean, just now, this, just this now, moment? I just want okay. to make, mark this. So no, because we, t- I mean, the, the the left gave up obviously any belief in the power of the state as an agent. So ha- having listened to the narrative of the right for so long, but the right gave up the state for ideological reasons also, so before that. So that was the statement, dismantling of the state. Then the left dismantled the state. So how can you intellectually, emotionally, practically fill that void? How can you, so it's, it's, everybody discarded it. Just Trump picked it up. Just Erdogan picked it up. So it's an authoritarian tool. How can you reconceive of an authoritarian tool with democratic means? Isn't it broken and gone? It's well, bad, no, I think the lesson from the story I'm really telling you is, is, is that it's not the brute force of power and interests. It's also the incredible importance of the narratives and the ideas and, and the, the cognitive maps uh, that you put in front of people. Um, and I think this is where the reconstruction would have to come from. So I think we should not be pessimists in the sense that, oh, you know, how are we going to mm-hmm. you know, rewrite the system, you know, given the, uh, the power of uh, money, given the power of, of finance, given the you know, authority of these uh, uh, you know, dictators already who have established themselves. Uh, but I think we should not overlook that you know their success really relies on on, on a narrative, um, and and you know if, if Trump was elected president, it wasn't because he came and said I'm going to make you know sort of all these people in Goldman Sachs uh, run the economy and provide tax cuts for the rich. That's really what I'm about. He came. You know, he won because he was able to provide a narrative about, you know, that we had created uh, an economic system and a, and a trading regime that was unfair to a whole lot of people. And as an outsider, he had a credibility that, that Hillary Clinton did not have. It was a pretty correct narrative, um, actually, and, 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 and in terms of being able to, uh, you know, give voice to those grievances, it was actually quite uh, quite a valid. Uh, I don't think his remedies um uh, were the appropriate ones, but he certainly was able to give voice to those uh, to those grievances in, in much the same way that that uh, uh, Bernie Sanders did. I think you know ultimately Bernie Sanders um, would have moved us uh, much more in the right direction without damaging democracy. Um, but the point was that you know you, you know you know somebody like Hillary Clinton no longer has the credibility, even though I'm sure that Hillary Clinton's policies would have done much bet much more. For the middle classes and the lower middle classes, than than Trump ever will. Uh, but the issue is, 
you know, that they don't come across as credible because they, you know, they sold us a bill of goods before, uh, and 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 she is the same person, um, and no matter what she says now. So I have to ask you about ideas then, because um, you're saying that the left bought into this neoliberal um, economic thinking, and looking back at the um, the history of of economic thinking that we've also talked about, uh, that you talked about in class this, this spring, uh, what happened after the the Great Recession uh, almost 100 years ago was that there there were new ideas coming eventually. Uh, there were, you had Keynesianism coming as a new way of thinking about how the economy worked and as a new way of, you know, finding tools to lift people up yeah. and not just um, stick to these old ideas of... Um, Austerity, and I'm just. What is the role of your own profession? Because I, I, my feeling is that also on the left, also with people like myself who are trying to find new ways of thinking about the nation state, thinking about how to how to create equality without damaging growth, and in this you know inclusive ideas about how to build society. But where do we get the help from? your profession these days mm-hmm. and I know this is something that you've been writing about and mm-hmm. thinking about because I, I feel that there's a lack of ideas and alternatives yeah I, I struggle w- with this I mean I, I don't think we we, ne- we necessarily have a lack of um, um, specific ideas and this is a debate that we had with Roberto in, yeah. Roberto in class you know you just you know take inequality um you know, you, you take Tony Atkinson's book yeah. on inequality and read his policy chapter, and you know there are ten, fifteen <coughs> uh, um, ideas there about what to do. Um, some of them fairly radical. I mean, you know that you would not have expected an economist of good standing job guarantee um, uh, to have come up with like, like what you know, like job like guarantee. Making, you know, uh, I would actually point to his ideas on how the government should explicitly try to uh, influence the direction of technological change yeah. uh, in, a, in, in, in a direction that is uh, much more employment-generating. Mm. And his idea is that, look, as long as we're in the business of financing R&D and, and technological innovation, it makes very little sense uh, at times of high inequality uh, to subsidize technologies that are going to be displacing labor, mm. uh, such as driverless cars. Uh, we should ensure that we're actually, and and this is a, you know, this is a fairly radical idea when you think about it. That you know the government should actually try to influence much more explicitly the direction of innovation by ensuring that's more you know employment generating. Uh, you know, for a neoclassical e- economist, this is, and and you know, sort of other in, you know ideas on taxation, mm-hmm. on job guarantees. So it, it is, so it is not, and I'm gi- I'm giving you know uh, you know Tony Atkinson just as an idea. We can talk about, of course, Piketty. We can talk about mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, Joe Stiglitz. Uh, you know, even Larry Summers. I mean, I think has long been arguing for mm-hmm. you know you know infrastructure, which I yeah. think you know large amount of, you know large infrastructure spending, which I think is a lot. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, to be set for. I think this would be... So it is not very difficult to think of a package of ideas which are already out there from, you know, ramp up in infrastructure to, you know, much more direct involvement of the government in in industrial strategy to progressive taxation uh, to... um, 
uh, to uh, you know fiscal reflation in in, in Europe uh, to um, higher minimum wages in in, in 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 the United States that would actually you know make a significant uh, impact um, uh, certainly on on inequality uh, when you put them together so I'm I'm, I'm less you know, pessimistic that that there isn't you know that 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 there aren't ideas, or that in fact in my own profession, economists aren't uh, engaged in generating those ideas. Um, you know what we seem to be lacking is is you know some kind of a master narrative yeah. that 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 puts us together. Uh, that's sort of the equivalent of um, you know um, uh, you know the importance of of uh, you know, uh, individual responsibility and opportunity, and therefore the market and getting the government off our backs, and 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 so that that's going to um, you know uh, put together these individual ideas in a way that sort of um, uh, you know can be used as a political uh, package that to construct a, a new coalition. It is not at all clear to me that that the American you know middle class. The white middle class uh, that we are now portraying as uh, as essentially sort of racist and, and and reactionary, you know, could not be mobilized uh, under a different set of narrative that that appeals to their economic interests and not just their in their cultural. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, sensibilities um, and their racial uh, characteristics. I think there again is it, it, it's, it's, it's a political, it's a failure of the political imagination and a failure of the political center left, um, and 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 uh, you know, but not a fundamental structural uh, obstacle. Just to challenge what you're saying, I, th- I I guess I fundamentally agree with you. You're, you, I mean, you're kicking the ball back into the the corner of politicians, basically, and you say that the ideas. I, I, are hate, I hate doing that, but, but in a, yes. But so, my, but my que- <laughs> so I guess my question is: so we we have this um, twenty years of market fundamentalism that that we're now trying to k- kind of get out of, and that we now see the effects of in terms of populism, in terms of inequality, and. Uh, and all the things. Really, we, nobody wants to get out. That's the problem. You, well, you I want think to get out. I we, do, and free, I think but, but, but no, I think over. no, I think a lot of people want to get out, get out of this moment. But but still, the idea of of the market, I think, is it's so it's so deep uh, in the political structures, in the way we talk about politics, in the way we talk about society. Uh, and I think what we would need is a. As, as a kind of a stronger backlash to the neoclassical uh, paradigm that was uh, has been so influential in politics. And I, I guess I'm asking, I agree with you that um, politicians need to be more brave and maybe we can talk about the failure of journalism and the failure of you know other parts of society. But I do feel that economists would have to be 
would need to be more self-critical of what has happened in in the last 20 years and the ideas that were you know came out of that profession came out of that thinking yeah. and yeah. Uh, in order for for yeah. these new ideas that you talk about to really gain traction in politics as well yeah i don't disagree about the culpability of of, of economists and i think i think you know sometimes that's misportrayed as as a financial capture but i, I think of it more as a as a cognitive capture yeah, that's, so it, yeah, it, wa- it wasn't that you know economists end up ended up being the promoters of a trade regime and and a, and, and a system of financial deregulation uh that that created severe problems uh you know it's just that you know they actually believed that that this was a you know that you know it wasn't because they were being paid uh by banks yeah. uh, or or by by exporters but it was that they actually uh, sort of ended up believing that this was the 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 right direction in which to move and then they ended up becoming the cheerleaders of globalization and mm. therefore as a result a, a, along with others um, I think they've lost a significant amount of credibility and mm. and that credibility needs to be rebuilt um, I know I'm I'm I, I'm suggest so I don't deny that at all I'm just suggesting that that you know the that economics is a broad tent that there are in fact as you know new ideas that are that are bubbling up you know you know, some of the best work that's um, highlighting some of the downsides of globalization is coming from you know our top departments, you know MIT and yeah. and uh, um, so so you know this this stuff is indispensable and I think there's a, there's a lot of you know there there is some reconsideration uh, both on the impact of trade and financial uh, deregulation and and and, and capital uh, liberalization uh, in in the profession. Um, so, you know, I think you know there's a little bit of it that that's happening. Um, I, I do think that we we lost credibility because you know we did not do a very good job of presenting, in fact, our own discipline, our own profession, and what it teaches to the public. And instead, you know, essentially uh, became one-sided uh, cheerleaders um, of of uh, trade agreements. So I don't I don't I don't disagree with that at all. But I, I again, I mean. You know, usually I'm the pessimistic one, but you, 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 two, you two are, you know, are, are, you know We're seems, taking it to another seems, level. seems so dark about yeah. where we no, are. No, so, let's, no. so I'll bring up the optimist okay. in you much, uh, sort of, um, pre- much more sort of precisely, maybe, yeah, that's with, with, uh, mm. <laughs> with, uh, with, uh, with your points of, um, about, um, I think it's really, really interesting to, to, to think about globalization as a cognitive model as a narrative um, that that how you how you approach the world and 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 all the many worlds and this is i think why the the we in the beginning is such an essential problem there is no we so and and actually we talk about economics but we talk about the world in the 21st century here so how how do you how how do you see others how do you listen to others and that's sort of my (laughs) takeaway from from the class and from other classes here is um you have to be precise about the places. You have to be in, in, in knowing which are the countries that you talk about, and so so that and that's what Roberto Anger would call Fordist method. Is, is the other way. You, you have a uniform vision for the world. You have one strategy, which is sort of the IMF strategy of, of austerity and lowering taxes and, and all that sort of, and then creating business friendly environments. So, but you talk very precisely, I think, um, about sort of. Maybe you can elaborate on that sort of the multi multitude of 
of solutions or the pre precision the, the, uh, of, of going yeah. to a country and really understanding yeah. what what yeah. what's what's the place there. I think that's really inspiring. So, I mean, so I, I I I think you're right that I think it's very important to be very careful about who the we uh, mm. is, um, and I think one of the mistakes that you know. Um, you know, we intellectuals um, have have made is to do, to buy in and do, into this notion of, of you know global citizenship. You'll remember the the outcry uh, when uh, when Theresa May uh, said, I think it was at the Conservative Party Congress uh, at the end of last year, um, that uh, you know if you if if you say you're a global citizen, you're a citizen of nowhere. And, and all the you know in, in polite company this became like a horror uh, that you know that you know, you know Theresa May was you know, saying something that was so backward and and and, and regressive and was pushing you know us back into mm. sort of our little countries. But when you think about it, she was actually hundred percent right mm. uh, that there is no such thing as a global citizenship. It doesn't make sense even as a metaphor. Uh, that is that you know citizenship is something that has to do with being part of a political system, being part of a political community. Now, who are we, the so-called global citizens? Who are we a citizen of? I mean, we're basically just end up we're just talking to each other, and then we we feel we're you know are discharging our obligations to citizenship by talking to other people who look like we, who travel in this you know global you know uh, international uh, network and. We have the same high-minded views about how we're all in the same boat and it's one planet and, and we need to look at, you know, take care of the poor while we're expanding you know, economic opportunities for everyone and so forth. Um, but the we is really defined by the boundaries of existing political communities. And the boundaries of existing political communities today are the nation states. So the we is the nation states. So, the, you know, if, if we, uh, this is what I, I really believe in very strongly, if we do what's best for our own country, whatever you know, country we're a citizen of, if we do the best for our country, and our country works well, and we have properly functioning governance at the national level, forget global governance, if we have properly functioning governance at the, at the national level, we will have a much better functioning global economy, we will have a much healthier globalization that we can sustain. Uh, so the way to really achieve a lot of the ends that we want is really by doing better uh, as we national citizens, not some abstract global citizens. Um, and and I think that is the the essential logic uh, that we have to return to that that we have neglected because of this sort of high-minded cosmopolitan sense of cosmopolitanism. But isn't the problem? Or isn't the problem? <laughs> Go ahead. Um, in a way that sort of there are so many uh, the nations which are in the 21st century and nations which are still in the 19th century, in a way. Um, so, so and it all happens at the same time. And, and, and the problem is, so from a European perspective, I think it's an ideological, and I think you're, you're right about sort of the, the failures to, of imagination and that sort of that you wanted a certain story to be true. So you had to have the all-encompassing, the big European Union. I remember the discussion about about sort of the core union or the larger union. It was sort of totally, everybody was agreeing that this is a very, very, everybody seemed to be agreeing from, from the middle that, that you have to be the, 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 the larger union is, is the bigger, better solution, whereas the, the smaller union might have made sense because those are 
countries on the same level and the same time, living at the mm -hmm. same time. So I'm w wondering how this could happen on a global scale if you have sort of emerging democracies or struggling democracies yeah. and you have uh, drifting countries like Turkey or now the United yeah. States, which sort of drift out, and then you have people who want, uh, countries who want to play by the rules, uh, namely Sweden, <laughs> Germany or others. So if it's on Germany, not it's not playing by the rules. We can talk. We should talk about that. So the destruction of Europe, but Germany. So how how can you come up with the system that 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 manages sort of those different time? Well, precise, precisely by not trying to squeeze them into uh, you know a common set of rules. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's the point. You know, look, I mean, you know, f it, it, there are some truly global problems like climate change or health pandemics where you really need a lot of global cooperation to get action. Uh, you know, even then, I think that you know much of the action uh, on global climate will be achieved by individual countries or states. Uh, Progressing despite the absence of global agreements, and I think you know what you see in California, what you see in China in terms of what they're doing, you can see that you know that even even there you can have a significant amount of action without um, global agreements. But if we look at we leave you know truly global public goods aside, like um, the global climate or um, the global health um, uh, system. Uh, most of the economic problems aren't don't have the nature of global public goods. That is, that you know, in order to provide them, you know, you don't need tremendous amount of global coordination and global co cooperation. After all, uh, you know, you know, things like free trade, free capital mobility, sound finance, you know, good growth programs. Those are good for individual countries on their own. Uh, so you know. You know, it's not for the benefit of other countries that I should have a fairly open economy. It's for my own benefit. It's not for other countries' benefit that I should have immigrants. It's for my own benefit. Um, it's not for other countries' benefit that I should have sound financial regulation. It's for my own benefit. So if, if, if countries are doing what's good for themselves in the first place, in other words, acting purely out of national interest and not out of cosmopolitanism, they will end up doing uh, the things that are right for other countries too, by and large. Um, and I think you know, and 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 that's the essential truth. And if they are not, so if you if you have countries you know that are you know regimes that are ruining their economy, if you are, if you have regimes that are uh, driving their countries into authoritarianism, there is very little that the rest of the world can do to actually change that. Uh, there is something they can do. There's the, there's the do no harm principle. You know, you, you know, you don't sell arms to cruel authoritarian regimes that are repressing the rights of the people. Uh, you don't necessarily provide them, you know, the same access to markets uh, that you do to other democratic countries. Uh, but you do it out of principle. You do it out of you know we don't want to be assisting the hand that that's uh, murdering people or repressing people. You don't do it out of you know expectation that that's really going to necessarily change how they behave. Um, so those are you know the two 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 key principles. If if you know you do what's right for you, uh, you'll also serve a global cause. Uh, and secondly, if there are countries that are you know falling um, you know through these economic or political syndromes, there's very little that the rest of the world can do other than follow the principle of do no harm. Uh, you know. 
that by itself, by the way, is would require a lot of change. Uh, the same, the principle of do no harm. Yeah, you would need institutions yes. to enforce you know, we, that. We are, right? Well, not necessarily global. I, I think democracies mm-hmm. have a responsibility to their own values, to their own interests. Uh, you know, not to be to provide. You know, to take a, a, you know clear example. You know, sell. You know, doing arms deals worth of hundred you know, billion dollars uh, with a dictatorship like Saudi Arabia. Um, you know that's you know that's 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 that's, that's, a, that's a failure. Sweden and uh, Germany, which, you know, has its arms industry, mm-hmm. and of course Germany. So you know, I think all democracies are, are are culpable there. But the argument there has got to be won on the national level. It's mm-hmm. got to be the Swedes and the Germans and the Americans who are you know should be able to organize and tell their governments this is not consistent with our own values. It's the failure of our own governance mechanism. It's not some failure of lack of global cooperation uh, or global governance that's that's causing this. So I'm, <clears throat> I'm hearing a strong argument for uh, the existence of agency on the national level, and I'm. It's interesting, I think, because I, I guess one residual or one. Um, that the 90s left us with is this idea that the nation state is lax in agency because of um, globalization and global capital flows that will just you know uh, companies will just leave you if you if you have too high taxes they will just go somewhere else and this argument I think is strong this idea is still very strong mm-hmm. uh, for example in where I come from in, in Sweden that, yeah. that there's this kind of lack of confidence in the idea that we can actually, you know, build something very different from, or very different, but that we can have our own political project. There is this idea of mainstreaming still. And could you? Well, I think you know there is. I think it's it's an idea that's. I think it's overstated. Yeah. Uh, I think the existence of Sweden as an example. Yes, I agree you know, with that. So it's, it's not like, you know, Sweden has turned into into Britain or the United States in the, in the last 20 years. Uh, but yes, really the, proud, that argument that argument is made and and you know and and, and Sweden did have to lower its, you know, top tax rates uh, significantly and and, and uh, did it have to, term. or did did we just so, believe that we have to? Um, that we so, had I, to? so I think it, you had to. Probably it had gone too far. I mm-hmm. mean, I think you know it's uh, you know I, I'd like, but I'd like the argument for reducing, for example, top tax rates to be based not on you know if we don't do that, people will leave or capital will leave, but instead on the basis of you know you know that this is you know this is hindering. Uh, Entrepreneurship and economic opportunity too much. So you sort of make the argument on its on its merits uh, rather than on you know this is what globalization requires us to do. I think because you don't the, believe that's true, uh, or do you so think I, it's I just a bad that argument? I believe that's only half true. Half so true. I think you know. Mm-hmm. So and the other. So so is so I say to the extent that it's not true uh, because after all. People do want to go live in Sweden because I think you know Sweden provides significant amount of public goods uh, because of of you know being able to tax its tax stake being so high, and uh, and that's why people do go live in in, in Sweden. And so you, in other words, you know the high taxes are compensated by uh, the high quality um, public institutions and high quality of public goods that that are provided, and 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 that balances out. Uh, there is, but there is the other fifty percent uh, that is true, which is that you know, in a world of capital mobility, mm. sometimes it is difficult to tax uh, your mobile professionals and your capital, and that there is a 
tax, there's a race to the bottom, uh, which makes leave all countries worse off. And and to the extent that you know that you know there is such a problem, I think countries should interfere. They they should have the self confidence to say, no, this is the part of globalization that I do not like. Mm. Um, and um, uh, and I think smaller countries, of course, have a harder time because then the smaller countries will need to uh, coordinate with other countries to find a solution to uh, tax havens. Mm. Uh, but you know, I think there you know some of the larger rich countries can move, uh, you know, um, no country, I mean, no company can afford uh, to um, uh, not do business uh, in the United States if the U.S. were able to say, you know, if you don't abide by my tax rules uh, and, and create a shell company somewhere else to, to evade taxes, then you don't have access to my market. Uh, no company will... Uh, accept that uh, uh, and 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 take the you know not pay taxes, you know if the EU or even you know significant members of the EU could collectively agree on that once again I think would be extremely powerful. It's um, a picketry so, argument. Um, <coughs> yes, yes. Uh, so I'm I'm saying two things. I'm saying that that on on a lot of issues uh, I, I I think we exaggerate uh, the constraint that globalization places on the nation state. Uh, but I also say that yes, I mean the constraints have increased. Uh, you know, and that's part of the problem yeah. uh, with the global system that we have currently uh, is that it has narrowed uh, the, the the scope for uh, democratic. Uh, decision making it has narrowed the scope for difference mm. for Sweden to decide how it wants to be Sweden mm. and and that we should not allow. Could we go back to the EU? You uh, don't want to talk about Sweden anymore. For for a moment, <laughs> I want to talk about Karen's shouting match with uh, Darren Ajamoglu the other day, um, where he said, "Well, she's the last uh, social democrat." And Merkel. Merkel, mm. uh, and you said, "No, no, no," and 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 so that that moment um, sort of, of um, reckoning with uh, sort of the, the difference Merkel inside sort of politics and, and sort of towards refugees and, and the European um, sort of the, the, the austerity measures that sort of are potentially leading to disintegration of, of, of Europe. Uh, could you um, maybe from your perspective, and that goes back to the failure of, of economists maybe or to come up with a certain clear view of what's happening. Could you explain to me why, from your perspective, why German economists or politicians had such a difficult time to um, let go of that very moralistic argument and what, what are yeah. and were the consequences of, of Germans, Germany's actions in, within Europe? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a confluence of, of uh, ideas and interests. I mean, I think sometimes um, you know, the German view is presented as being the result of, um, you know, the 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 residue of um, the experience with hyperinflation in the interwar period, and therefore the excessive focus on monetary stability and and on fiscal conservatism, um, and that you know that has colored. Uh, sort of, you know, German views on economic policy, that, you know, this ultra-orthodox, um, uh, um, you know, perspective on, 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 on the macroeconomy that has never bought into Keynesianism and so forth. So I think there is a, there's an element of that, uh, but it's not the only thing. I think it's also the fact that, you know, Germany found itself 
um, at the time of the crisis in a structurally very strong position as the as the creditor nation that already had full employment and 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 was doing well in terms of economic performance, uh, and therefore, you know, frankly, it wasn't exactly uh, against its interests to pursue austerity policies for Europe because the cost would be borne by others. Um, and to the extent that it ensured that money would be coming back to the banks, it would, uh, you know, pr- you know, it would, um, it, it would serve the interests of the ger- of Germany as a creditor so nation. How doesn't, that, how doesn't that contradict your hopeful statement about the nation states working for the interests and then sort of ultimately for for greater good? So oh no, no. I mean, I, you know, I, I think you know the the problem with uh, with with Europe is is that. You know, up until the crisis, you know, the perception was that it was a union. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once the crisis comes, then, you know, from the perspective of Germany, it became, ah, you know, the Not problem quite. is, is, is you know, those, uh, you know, those those lazy Greeks and those mm. profligate, uh, you know, uh, Greek, Greek government, you know, why should we be, you know, uh, bailing them out? Mm. Whereas if you had carried out the logic of the union, uh, it would have been a story about, Interdependence. It was that we created this union. You know, we created a system where a lot of German banks uh, lent to Greece. Uh, the problem was as much as much us overlending as it was the Greeks uh, overborrowing, and that would be the, have been the logic of the union. And then, then we look at it as a collective problem. We solve our collective interests. So that's precisely the problem of Europe that you know it's not having decided, uh, or having decided at some point uh, until the crisis strikes, as thinking about like un- as a union. But once the crisis strikes, the national interest comes back again. And of course, that's much more dangerous because if the national interest was going to prevail, then capital markets would have ensured that Greece would not have gotten so much money, you know, and people would have protected themselves, mm. uh, and therefore um, uh, you, you would not have had the kind of crisis that that you had. But I do blame uh, Merkel and, and 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 the German government for having resorted back to the logic uh, of of national interest and 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 the kind of a morality play. Uh, of, of uh, you know, uh, uh, thrifty Germans versus profligate Greeks, uh, which in fact, in turn, fed into um, a, a kind of, of, of re-highlighting of national interest and made, I think, uh, political the building of a political community that much harder. And can Macron and Merkel sort it out? Is, that, is there a new beginning for? I don't know. I, I, I hope so. I mean, uh, you know, again, I, I think. You know, I think what the Ger- what Germany doesn't seem to realize is that this this line that, you know, you do your structural reforms, and if they work, and then you know, then we'll give you some fiscal space, is is got it exactly backwards. Uh, now, you know, because structural reform, when it works, is going to produce some results in the mid medium term. What Macron needs is early results. It needs you know early gains on 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 reducing unemployment. And if he's just going to have to rely on structural reform, uh, it's just going to make him less popular over time. And and is and, and you know he will prove another Hollande. Um, and and you know, so I can understand the German view that oh, if we just give them fiscal space, they'll just use it, but not do the structural reforms. You know, but then you have to decide. Okay, you know, if you if you do not trust your main partners in the European project, right? We're not talking about Greece anymore. We're talking about now about France. If you're not going to trust your main partner in the European project, you know, forget it. 
and and this is frankly, it's going. It's the last chance. I mean, you know, I don't think it's going to because if Macron fails, you're not going to get anybody, um, you know, more willing uh, to an eventual European solution. So, uh, as a last question, it's interesting that you accused us earlier in the podcast to be uh, gloomy and <laughs> pessimistic. Diagnosed, <laughs> and maybe I, not accused. I, I don't mind <laughs> like being optimistic. <laughs> no, I don't know if this description of the, you know the future of German-French uh, relationships or the um, prognosis is very um, optimistic. But uh, wh- so, on the optimistic note, how what's the way out of this trilemma then uh, for? And I, I'm speaking now of the West, of of uh, of Europe and the U.S. What is the what is the positive way of thinking about the say the next five years? What could happen? Well, I think you know, I you know, the, for let me leave aside Europe, Europe for a second, but for the United States mm-hmm. and and other countries who are not members of of uh, uh, the European Union, I think it's, it's it's going to be a matter of of rebalancing our priorities and yeah. I think we put we need you know we, we need to uh, self-consciously and unembarrassedly put uh, sort of national renewal first and I, for reasons that I you know that that I, I said be explained before you know this is not an anti-globalist it's not a parochial it's not a you know nativist xenophobic uh, view it's, it's one that says that if you want a healthy global economy you have to start with healthy national economies and that can only be done by 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 uh, you know re um, reimagining and and, and 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 renegotiating the domestic social contract and that's going to require putting national democracies first and foremost and uh, now um, so that means fundamentally let's think about you know globalization and its rules uh, again as, as as a means to that end rather than uh, an end in, in itself uh, so from that perspective I don't mind at all if you put trade agreements in the back burner for it for uh, for the time being uh, while while we're engaged in a, in a real project of, of national renewal uh, not a fake one as mm-hmm. in the case of Donald Trump Uh, and I think in the case of Europe, it, I mean, I think the choice is there. You know, yeah. maybe Macron and Merkel uh, will make it work. They'll understand. Okay, this is now. This is a second window of opportunity. The first one was right after the crisis, but we blew it. Now we have a new president. We'll be a German election soon. There'll be a new mandate, uh, and and let's go and uh, show some real leadership and push us, uh, um, and 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 let's pull our publics, because after all, Europe is always, you know, uh, I guess, to denigrate it, you could say it's an elite project, but, you know, to actually, you know, in the more neutral terms, it was always the elites, the political mainstream, you know, essentially pulling their publics along uh, on, 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 on this European project, which uh, for which there wasn't a lot of popular enthusiasm. Uh, but the politicians played a huge role in, in in bringing this along. Now we need the equivalent of that in the social sphere, in the fiscal sphere, in the political sphere that we already had in the economic sphere in the 1980s. Um, and 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 maybe if that happens, uh, you know, Europe uh, can pull through to a different uh, corner of this trilemma where uh, they're essentially building a Europe, European political community and transnationalizing democracy. Uh, with much significant roles for for nation for for the nation state in Europe. So, with that uh, call to arms for Angela Merkel, thank you so much, <laughs> Danny Rodrik, for this conversation. Great to talk to you. Thank you.